podcast family. As I've said before, I think it's so strange how things work out. We've talked about the rule of threes, right? Things come in threes. Now, whether you believe that or not, you've got to admit, it is kind of coincidental that that seems to be true. Or have you ever thought of someone and then automatically they like text you or they call you not more than 10 minutes later? That happens to me all the time. It's weird, can't explain it, but it's a thing. In Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, which is a bestseller and has been a bestseller for decades, he writes that we're all connected by the universal energy through the ether. Look, I'm not new agey at all. I'm very traditional right down the middle. (laughs) But I find his book so interesting because there are things that we really can't explain, like how this episode idea came to be. Yeah, we're all connected through the ether, through some unknown energy. Well, that's what Napoleon Hill would say. You see, not long ago, I received a Facebook message asking for more gynecological topics. And of course, just shortly after that request, both in social media and main media channels, some interesting brand new gynecological studies had come out. So we got those up and out to you. Well, in that same vein, just the other day, one of my former medical students, who's now an OBGYN resident in another location here in Texas, and she's absolutely killing it as an OBGYN resident, but she had this super deep, very good clinical question. So I'm going to share this question with you because that's the focus of our episode. So the question went like this. Hey, Dr. Chapa, we had a patient who wanted an IUS, so we're about to place it, but we noticed a little bit of white watery discharge that looked very suspicious for BV. Now, she had no complaint of abnormal discharge, but it was pretty obvious that something was there. So they did a microscopy and concluded that she met criteria for BV. They did the microscopy because they just thought it was going to be quicker as point of care rather than sending out an affirm test or something else. Uh, And so they diagnosed her with active bacterial vaginosis. Remember, asymptomatic. Uh, So the question is, well, can you place an IUD with a patient who has obvious bacterial vaginosis? This patient had no previous history of PID and really wanted to get her IUS, her Mirena inserted, so she didn't have to come back. So that's our clinical premise, all right? So what would you do? Would you treat her and delay it? Would you place it and treat her? Or would you just ignore the BV altogether? I hope you wouldn't do that last one because that's obviously not the right thing to do. So the question is, place it or not place it? So hang out with this podcast family because we're going to give you the evidence-based answer to this clinical situation. Ready? Here we go. This is Cade. I'm a third-year medical student at Texas A&M University. I'm Kimia. I'm an undergraduate student at Texas A&M University. And And this this is is Clinical Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
I want to uh, just do a quick review about long-acting reversible contraceptives in general, all right? So remember that long-acting reversible contraceptives includes Nexplanon as the implant and then the intrauterine varieties, whether that's copper called the IUD, because there's only one intrauterine device, Device means it's non-pharmacological, and that's the copper tea at this time, Reparagard. And then there's the intrauterine drug delivery systems, or the IUSs, all right? That's the Morena family, Morena, Kalina, Skyla, and Liletta. Liletta, of course, not is within, it's not within the Morena family, but it's still the cousin as it's a competitor, all right? So all those are larks. Depo is not a lark. Uh, the vaginal ring is not a lark, right? The patch isn't a lark. It's the shot and the intrauterine contraceptives. And remember that larks are extremely effective because you take away user error. However, even though they're all very good, they do not all have the same efficacy. I actually covered this in a past episode. You may remember it's called something like Not All Larks Are the Same. I think that's the title. Anyway, you can find it in the archive. And first of all, I'll be very clear. I'm absolutely in favor of larks. You've heard me before. I think it's definitely the way to go. But to say that they're all the same is not even just not accurate. It's not evidence-based because they do have some very, very specific differences in terms of efficacy. The most effective of all the LARCs, even beating permanent sterilization, is the eternogestrel implant. The typical failure rate with the implant is 0.1%. And with perfect use, which I'm not sure how you get perfect use. I mean, you put it in and you don't do anything about it. So I'm assuming typical use is maybe discontinuation or I, mean, I don't know. But the typical use is 0.1%. And perfect use has been stated at 0.01%. I mean, super effective. All right. So of all larks, the eternogestrol is definitely the most effective. By the way, no, Nexplanon is not a sponsor. Next in effectiveness is Mirena or the intrauterine system. The typical failure rate for Mirena is 0.4%. So let's stop there for a minute. All right. I mean, super effective. Again, beat sterilization. Sterilization has a failure rate equal to the copper T. So let me just throw that out right now, which is 0.8%. Right. These are typical failure rates. That's very well published uh, through the CDC through contraceptive technology. Uh, There's a variety of of sources that all pretty much agree that Nexplanon is the most effective and then comes the uh, Mirena intrauterine system. And then the third is the copper tea, which is about the same as sterilization. See, those are all very good. They're all great as a group. But to say they're all equal is not true. So let's stop there for a minute with the IUS, with Mirena, all right? So Mirena has that typical failure rate of 0.4%. So if you're thinking, now, oh, come on, man, come on, Hector. I mean, look, it's, Nexplanon is 0.1%. The Mirena is 0.4%. Is that a big deal clinically? Well, clinically, probably not. However, personally, it sure is. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by that. Look, if, if, if my daughter asks me for the most effective method of birth control because she's not ready to, to, to conceive, um, I'm definitely looking for the 0.3% difference, all right? <laughs> so 0.1% typical failure rate compared to 0.4% may not mean a lot on a population level. Those are pretty comparable but on a personal level, I think it does. Having said that, you all know that I'm very, very Mirena friendly. I think it does great work. 
as a more local action than something that's that's much more systemic like Nexplanon. But again, just to be true to the data, the typical failure rates are different, right? 0.1 and then goes to 0.4 and then 0.8 for the copper tea and sterilization. But all to say, all are super effective and it's up to the patient to decide what is best for them. Remember, there's no advantage or no benefit to placing an IUD or an IUS on the patient's period. That was a thing when I was in residency. Oh, the service was going to be more patent if they were on their period and you can place it in there at that time. And we would wait, have make patients wait for them, for them to be on their cycle. That doesn't make any sense. So you can place it any time, regardless of where they are in their cycle. But remember, where they are in their cycle definitely does matter in terms of its effectiveness. In other words, if you're going to place a copper T, you can place a copper T anytime and a Mirena or an IUS anytime that the, you are reasonably sure that the patient is not pregnant. However, the mechanism of action for the copper T versus a Mirena, a progesterone release in IUS is totally different, right? You all get that. That's not a, you know, any surprise. But when you can rely on it is different based on when you insert it. So once you place a copper T, there's no additional contraceptive protection that's needed. So as long as there's reasonable assurance that she's not pregnant, you can place the copper T even within five days of unprotected intercourse. And once you place a copper T, remember, there's no additional contraceptive protection that's needed. That's great. However, that's a little bit different than a progesterone-releasing intrauterine device, okay? Because for that, it does kind of matter where you place it in the menstrual cycle for effectiveness, but you can place the progesterone-releasing IUD at any time in the cycle. Just like with the copper T, they do not have to be on their period. However, if the levonorgestrel IUD or the IUS is inserted within the first seven days since menstruation, then no additional contraception is needed. Okay, so, hey, just had my period. Great. Doesn't really matter for placement. It matters for effectiveness. But now that you're in the first week of your period, then we can definitely place the uh, Mirena uh, or the progesterone release in IUS without any need for backup birth control. However, if the levonorgestrel intrauterine system is inserted more than seven days since menstrual bleeding started, then the woman, the patient, needs to abstain from sexual intercourse or use additional contraceptive protection for the next seven days. All right, does that make sense? Remember, it takes a while for that progestin to have its effect on the endometrial cavity and to thicken the cervical mucus um, and to potentially have an effect on ovulation. So if you place it early on in the cycle, great, fantastic. No additional, no backup birth control is required in that situation. But if it's placed more than seven days from menstrual cycle, then yes, additional backup contraception is recommended or abstain from intercourse, which is not as much fun, for the next seven days. And remember, both are acceptable as emergency contraception, and both can be used within five days. So remember that for emergency birth control. Let's review that real quick. Historically, just a copper tea was used, and it could be placed within five days of sexual intercourse. But we now know that the 52 milligram progestin intrauterine system can also be used, and that's non-inferior, right? Plenty of data for that, so it's not just a copper tea. You can definitely do 
um, a progestin IUS at 52 milligrams, but it has to be at five days, all right? So that's that's a quick reminder about emergency birth control. It's not just copper tea, but also can be the intrauterine system at 52 milligrams. let's review the main takeaways there. You can place any intrauterine contraceptive any time in the menstrual cycle as long as there's reasonable assurance that she's not pregnant. If you place the copper T, there's no additional backup birth control needed, period. However, it does matter when you place a progesterone-releasing intrauterine system. If it's placed within seven days of menstruation, no backup is needed. But if you place it after the first seven days, then abstainment or backup birth control is needed for the first seven days. All right, podcast family, now that we've settled that, now let's get to our resident's question and why this physician was concerned about placing an IUD with current bacteriovaginosis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, this physician should be concerned about this. After all, BV-associated bacteria have been commonly found in the upper genital tract of women with PID, including those in which an STI was not identified. And of course, in PID cases, there have been vaginal microorganisms that have been isolated in the endometrium and even in the cul-de-sac. Soper et al. published that back in 1994 in the Gray Journal. BV organisms have been shown in model systems to cause oviduct damage. Additionally, BV has been associated with an increased risk of STI acquisition and STI persistence. Yeah, this resident physician was good in being concerned about this. But being concerned about something, which is good, it's good to be concerned about things, doesn't necessarily make it a contraindication. Having said that, I mean, do we need to screen for BV before IUD placement? So now let's review the screening guidelines for infection before intrauterine contraceptive use. So here's a clinical pearl. Neither ACOG nor the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommend screening all women for asymptomatic cervical infection before insertion, but rather they recommend identifying those at high risk through history and physical and then testing those that qualify based on risk factors. The CDC considers women with any of the following to be at increased risk for STIs, age under 26 years, having a new partner, having had more than one partner in the last 12 months, and having a history of an STI. Canadian recommendations for testing are similar and also include vulnerable populations such as injection drug users and women who are incarcerated. ACOG and the CDC are on the same page on this, and they say it's absolutely okay to screen for gonorrhea and chlamydia at time of placement, but you don't have to delay the IUD or the IUS insertion to wait for results if the patient is otherwise asymptomatic. 
If STI screening guidelines have been followed, then most women do not need additional STI screening at time of IUD insertion. But if a woman has not been screened according to guidelines, then screening can be performed at the time of the IUD or the IUS is being inserted. And insertion, here it is, guys, quote, should not be delayed waiting for results, end quote. And the reason they do that is because, yes, you're going to find the infection, you're going to get on top of it, you're going to offer treatment, but you don't want to miss a crucial time to provide effective contraception when somebody presents for it. A systematic review identified two studies that demonstrated no differences in PID rates among women who screened positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia and underwent concurrent IUD insertion compared with women who screened positive and initiated other contraceptive methods. That was published in 2016 in the journal Contraception. So what's the clinical pearl here? Well, the clinical pearl is that women who undergo same-day STI screening and IUD insertion have low incidence rates of PID. Nonetheless, remember that this is for otherwise asymptomatic cervical infections that can be found at screening. But that brings us to our residence question. Everybody gets the idea about screening for cervical infections, but what about screening for vaginal infections like bacterial vaginosis, like in this case? We're going to get to that in just one moment. But talking about possible contraindications, and let me be a spoiler right now, having BV is not a contraindication to IUD or IUS placement, and I'll explain why in a minute. But there are some true contraindications to get this placed. The World Health Organization, the CDC, and ACOG all list current PID, purulent cervicitis, or current chlamydial and gonorrheal infections as absolute contraindications to the insertion of an IUD. So l let me be very clear because that's a little confusing. Wait a minute. Current gonorrhea or chlamydia infections, that's a contraindication? Yeah, if they already know that they have it, then you got to treat them first and then place the IUD, all right? And the idea is, is that if they've already had uh, a diagnosis, then the, the amount, the bacterial count is likely higher. And so you don't want to break that, that seal uh, and possibly seeding it. I, I know it's kind of semantics and it's theoretical, but it is what it is. I actually covered this in a previous episode, so you got to go back in the archives and check that out. Because here's one of the clinical problems, right? You have somebody at risk of an unplanned pregnancy uh, who comes to you, but she says, by the way, I've been told I've gone to rear or chlamydia. They screened me and haven't been treated yet. Well, now to offer her treatment, now you have to send her back out uh, to make sure that she's, you know, it's cleared before you place the IUD, but then there's no guarantee that she's going to come back. So that leaves her in a gap, right? So there are some who say, look, I'm going to offer you treatment and then I'm going to place the IUD because it's no difference than just uh, us finding it at time of screening. But you do have to draw the line somewhere. So active gonorrhea or chlamydia uh, uh, or active mucopillar and cervicitis is considered a contraindication. Now, you got to go back again and listen to that past episode because we went all through that uh, debate in the past of how long should you wait uh, before you place the IUD after treatment. And the answer is, well, how long do you want to leave the patient uh, unprotected from uh, from un unplanned pregnancy. So it's really deep, but again, I don't want to get into that now because we want to focus on BV, the vaginal condition, okay? But remember, right now, the true absolute contraindication is active PID or active mucopillar cervicitis or untreated gonorrhea or chlamydia um, that the patient already knows it, that she has, um, but has not yet been treated. 
Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was just given our podcast episode where we covered this. It was on December the 15th, 2022, and the title was Timed IUD Insert After Chlamydia Treatment, all right? So go back to December the 15th, 2022, Timed IUD Insert After Chlamydia Treatment. Okay, but we're talking about vaginal infections, specifically bacterial vaginosis in this episode. Oh, podcast family, as a little freebie, remember that there's one other weird contraindication for the copper IUD that's, again, more theoretical than actually a known risk because nobody's going to place this IUD in these patients uh, because of the potential harm. And remember that the copper IUD is contraindicated with a certain genetic condition, that's Wilson's disease, because of the potential for abnormal uh, copper absorption uh, and uh, incorporation into the body, all right? So copper IUD is a no-go with Wilson's disease. But what about bacteriovaginosis? We get screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia, but do we have to screen for bacteriovaginosis? Well, we already alluded to this a little while ago. There is no professional organization that recommends or has guidelines for screening for BV before IUD insertion. It's pretty much just gonorrhea and chlamydia. In a Canadian study, 70 women were tested for BV and cervical infections prior to having an IUD inserted, and five of those 70, or 7%, were found to have BV. Only one of those five were symptomatic at time of insertion, and she was treated with metronidazole. Repeat swabs were performed at one month. Four of those five women no longer had BV, and the remaining woman was treated with metronidazole. In the entire cohort, only one woman developed PID and a tubal ovarian abscess three months after insertion, but all of her testing was negative for BV. There was no cases of PID in the women who had bacterial vaginosis during the entire study period. This was published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology from Canada in 2012. These authors stated, quote, The current standard of care does not require screening for BV before IUD insertion. However, if found, treatment of symptomatic BV can be considered to prevent complications, end quote. Well, that's pretty reasonable. But the take home there is the current standard of care does not require screening for BV before IUD insertion. Now, to drive this home, let's review the CDC medical eligibility chart that's easily found online. BV is not a contraindication according to the CDC. It's actually considered a Category 2. So under the CDC MEC table, look under STIs and it says vaginosis, and it actually includes BV and TRIC. And those are both given a number two for placement for either the copper T or the IUS. Now, let me explain. Cervical infection is different than a vaginal infection. And yes, TRIC and BV are both independent risk factors for PID. It's true. However, from an epidemiology standpoint, the idea is to give women effective birth control rather than not giving it simply because of the risk of potential PID. The contraceptive choice study from WashU that we actually discussed in that December 2022 episode about placing the IUD after chlamydial treatment uh, really gave us a lot of reassurance and uh, a lot of ease about placing IUDs in these patients, all right? Now, 
that doesn't mean that you don't treat them. So that's the catch. So should this resident, how we started this episode was this resident question, should should she have been concerned? Absolutely. Uh, Whether she's asymptomatic and definitely if she's symptomatic, I mean, you, you you need to see it and treat it. You don't just ignore it. But it's not a contraindication to IUD placement. So asymptomatic infections found at cervical screening still get the IUD place or the IUS, and then you can follow up the results and treat appropriately without removing the device. The same goes for vaginal infections, either trich vaginalis or bacterial vaginosis. If you find it, you can still place a device, but that requires treatment. All right, so contraindication is no, you can't do it, but it doesn't mean don't ignore it if you do find it. If you find it, you can still place the devices. You simply have to offer effective treatment and give the patient education that if they don't take the treatment, then potentially that could risk infection. But again, I refer you back to the December 2022 episode where we actually talk about the contraceptive choice study in much more detail. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. So the take-home message is if you find something suspicious, evaluate it and treat it. That's what we do as physicians. But know the difference between being concerned about something and something being a true contraindication. So in this case, having bacterial vaginosis, which could be a problem for sure, is something that needs to be treated, identified and treated, and then patient given the informed... uh... All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. So in this episode, we've answered the question, is having BV a contraindication to IUD or IUS placement? The answer is no, nor is it any guideline for us to screen for that. However, as healthcare providers, our job is to see something, identify it, and then treat it if it needs to be treated. Don't ignore it. So it was right for this resident physician to be concerned about having BV. Even though it was asymptomatic, it was an abnormality. And it's okay to place the IUD or the IUS at that time. It just requires appropriate patient information, patient education, and patient treatment to prevent any kind of complication. But no, vaginal infections are actually not a contraindication to IUD or IUS placement. Active cervical infection is. So theoretically, based on the CDC, they should be treated and then wait for three months to be retested. But no one's going to wait three months before effective birth control is used because that leaves patients unprotected. So go back to the December 2022 episode on IUD insert after chlamydia treatment for that information. The short take-home message in the clinical pearl is BV is not a contraindication to IUD placement. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.